Well, it is a joy to be able to stand here this morning and share with you from God's Word. It fits still. It feels good. Uh, I appreciate Pastor Todd inviting me to do this. Supposed to have been last week, and then surgery got delayed, and all of a sudden we found ourselves this week. And uh, I'm glad it did, because I like this passage on the baptism of Jesus that we'll be talking about this morning. Uh, so it is good to stand. It's good to be preaching in person somewhere. I've four, my last four times to preach have been preaching to an English-speaking Chinese congregation called Crossroads Baptist Church in Berkeley, California. And I've, each Sunday I've been here in worship and then rushed home and got on Zoom and I put on gym shorts and, and house shoes and uh, kept my shirt on and, and just uh, sat there in front of the camera and preached uh, all the way across the country. That was kind of fun in one way, but it's a whole lot more fun to be here in person. And so I appreciate this opportunity. You know, I've pastored really, uh, I'll count three other churches before coming to uh, before Grace was born, before coming to Somerset. And, and during that time, each time when I've left, I've always looked back and said, well, you know, that's not how I would have done it with a new pastor that came in. I can't tell you how much of a joy it's been to just be able to look back every Sunday and every week and say, wow, I didn't do it that way, but I sure wish I had, you know, because it's just a blessing to see what God is doing through the pastors of Grace Baptist in these days, and I'm humbled by that, to have been able to be a part of their lives and, and continue to be a part of their lives uh, in a way like this. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel as we continue in this series and study in, in Matthew, to Matthew chapter 3, beginning verse 13. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Todd gave the uh, uh, story of John the Baptist coming on the scene and preached on John the Baptist. And this is kind of continuing in that vein because this is a part of his ministry. And I want to ask you something before we read the text. Have you ever been, maybe in Somerset even, but in a city somewhere, and you've walked down the street and all of a sudden you come upon a street preacher? You know, usually he's disheveled a bit and he's, he's very loud and he's very boisterous and he has signs and have you ever thought oh I wish he weren't so loud and, and and so direct and all those signs he's carrying and typically if you're like me and I, this is confession time if you're like me you're walking down the streets you see the street preacher there and you immediately decide you need to be on the other side of the street you are so distracted by appearance and you're so distracted by the loudness and the and the and the challenging signs that you don't even hear the message you don't even take time to hear the message well I have on several occasions listened to the message and you know a lot of times their message is absolutely the truth generally it's a message sort of like John the Baptist message was repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins confess your sins you are a sinful generation you need to turn from your sins and turn to Christ and believe but we, we get so caught up with the appearance of the whole thing that we just can't even listen. Well, there was a, a real sense in which that's the way it was in John's day when he came on the scene. Can you imagine coming and dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and said he, all he ate was locusts and honey? I mean, that was kind of a strange diet. And he comes in, and let me tell you something. I have a feeling that John the Baptist would have made some of our street preachers look rather calm and rather mild. 
Repent, for the, the kingdom of God is at hand. And those religious leaders in particular did not want to hear that message. They thought they were the, they were the children of Abraham. They didn't need anything like that. And so they immediately rejected the message that John brought. They immediately turned him off, if for no other reason but because of the appearance of his coming. So you can imagine how it must, what they must have thought and how it must have looked. When all of a sudden, John's down at the river, and he's baptized, and he's preaching that same message, and this one who is just beginning to come on the scene goes down to John and wades into the waters and says, John, you baptize me. Now, the religious leaders would have surely thought at that point, this guy is of no significance. This guy really has nothing to say and nothing that we need to listen to. This guy, Jesus of Nazareth, really is going to the wrong side of the street when it comes to religious matters. But I want you to hear Matthew's account of it. Now, all the Gospels mention the baptism. They all mention the same details and a lot of people say, oh, see there, there's, there's erroneous things in the Bible. No, they all come at it from a different perspective. If you go to John's gospel, the baptism is all about theology. It's all about, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and pointing to Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. He's the one that I'm coming to be a forerunner for and to tell you about. As Pastor Todd spoke so eloquently of last week, so beautifully about that, that role that John the Baptist alone had to usher in the Messiah's ministry. But this really is the beginning of his ministry. Matthew, all throughout his gospel, and you'll see this as we move through it uh, on the months to come, Matthew's concern is to point to the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. That Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of what was said by the Old Testament prophets about the Messiah that was to come. John's Focus is to simply say, listen, here are seven signs, seven miracles that show that he really is the Christ. And he gets to the end of his gospel, he says, I'm writing all these miracles down, I'm writing all these things down so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew meticulously breaks down those prophecies throughout this book and points again, and he does it today even, and points to the fulfillment of those prophecies in the life of Jesus. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13, and let's just talk about this one who came to be baptized by John. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But, and, and if you're reading the, uh, uh, the ESV, you don't have a but there, but all the other translations do have a but there, and there's a but there in the, in the Greek, and, and Matthew loves the word but and then. Those are two of his favorite words. But John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, from heaven, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
And thus ends the reading of God's Word for this morning. Let's pray together. Father, teach us the truth of this mystery. Teach us the truth of this passage that if we just look at it simply, we'll be confusing and, and wondering why in the world did, did Jesus come to John when John even said, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. Father, help us see the beauty of fulfillment of all righteousness and the beauty of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the one who was to follow John, the one who was Messiah, Christ, King, Lord over all things. Father, teach us that truth this morning, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. John's baptism, as you saw last week, was straightforward. His baptism was for repentance and confession of sins, nothing else. You came to John, you said, I confess my sins, I repent of my sins, and John baptized them in the river, and they went forward to sin again, no doubt, but yet knowing that there was something unique and something significant about having been there and gone through that experience. And now Jesus comes along, and John looks at him, and he says, quite simply, I need to be baptized by you, and you come and ask me to, to baptize you. What is the, what's the deal here, we might say in the vernacular? Why are you coming to me? John knew that the Messiah, the, the Christ, was going to be sinless. He knew that Jesus would have no need of, of, of coming in repentance, that, that, that he had no sins that, and needs no forgiveness and has nothing to repent of. That's, that's very obvious. Peter made that clear in his epistle in 1 Peter 2.22 when he simply said about Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now this by Peter who had spent three years in his presence, who had walked with him, been taught by him, observed every encounter that he came into, every time that, that anything went wrong and much went wrong, there was a lot of people attacking him through his ministry, and Jesus never spoke deceit, he never sinned, even though people came against him in all different manner. And Peter says in him there was no sin and there was no deceit in his mouth. Or Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said, For our sake he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, listen, after my experience on the Damascus Road and being taught by the Lord in Arabia for a period of time before I started my ministry, I know that he knew no sin. He had no sin. And yet God the Father made him sin though on our behalf. He placed our sin upon him. I love the songs we sang this morning that talked about that. The wrath of God and the sin of man met together in Christ on the cross. That's such a glorious truth that we very well should not forget under any circumstances. Or the writer to Hebrews, in Hebrews 4.15, which simply says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus is our high priest, the writer of Hebrews makes that his theme, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Now, I'm tempted to go ahead and jump ahead to next week's sermon, but I'll leave that for Todd. I won't get there. But the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is, listen, he's experienced every temptation that you will ever face. He's, he's gone through it all, every temptation possible to man, and yet he is without sin. He never gave in. He never succumbed. He never let that overcome him like we do on so many times. So John knows that here is one who is without sin. And so he says, I, I, I need to be baptized by you, not you by me. And John will make clear in John 20, 1, 29 that not only, is he the, not only is he the one who is sinless in perfection, but he is the Lamb of God. In other words, he is the sin bearer. He who knew no sin becomes the sin bearer. So you understand why John was a little bit perplexed when Jesus came. It's kind of like in the experience of the washing of the feet by Jesus to his disciples just before his death. And he got to Peter and wanted to wash his feet. And Peter said, I'll have no part of it. I'll not let you wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus said, well, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. And so John recognized the same thing was taking place at this moment. So Jesus said, again the word but in verse 15, as, as Matthew is doing this, he says, but Jesus answered him. After he's objected, after he's complained about this not being the proper order, Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now understand that us there is not talking about you and me, I don't think. That us there is not saying, okay, if we go and get baptized, we fulfilled all righteousness. That, that by going through the waters this morning, Evan, in that beautiful act of, of confession and, and following of Christ, that, that if we go through that, then we have fulfilled all righteousness. No, he's talking about him and John fulfilling the righteousness and, and, and doing that right there at that point in the River Jordan as Jesus is baptized. But how in the world? Does him being baptized, how is it fitting to fulfill all righteousness? You've got to remember, Matthew is concerned to show, as G, with Jesus' words, the fulfillment of the prophets. He especially wants to show the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He's especially concerned that they would see that this is what is taking place because God has planned it, God has purposed it, and God is carrying it out. And Isaiah made that clear. He want, he'll want us to see that. The truth is, Jesus might well have been up in the front of the people with John calling sinners to repent. He could have gone alongside of him without any trouble and said, okay, now I'm really the one who has the authority to call you to repentance. John is doing it and doing it well, but I'm the one who can say, come and repent. But instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them and making himself one of them in the process of salvation that he would in due course accomplish. There's a, there's a very real sense in which Jesus' baptism was an act of simple humility. It was his humility being shown. Jesus humbled before man. 
even though he was the God of creation, even though he was the God who, through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created, he was there identifying in the baptism with those whom he would save. He consents to be counted even among the sinners along with everyone else. He was serving as an example. Jesus really didn't need to be baptized because of sin. But Jesus needed to be baptized so that you and I would understand the purpose for which he came and you and I would better understand while baptism does not save us, it is an important part of our discipleship in following Christ, just as it was for Evan this morning. Going through those waters, identifying with him. And, and how does it fulfill all righteousness? That's an, that's an interesting and in, in reality a somewhat confusing statement. Well, I think Jesus is probably thinking of Isaiah 53. I think John, uh, Matthew rather, is seeing it that way as Jesus says, we've got to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Their minds probably went quickly back to Isaiah 53. In verse 11 of Isaiah 53, the prophet says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Think about what Isaiah is saying there. Through his obedience, even to the cross for death, through his work and his going through and carrying through everything that is being done, through his obedience, he will make many to be accounted righteousness or righteous. There is that fulfillment of pointing toward where he's going. Or, or the 12th verse of chapter 53, where Isaiah says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. We tend to think of that usually as the experience of the cross hanging on the cross with two terrorists on either side of him, two murderers, two insurrectionists, and him hanging there, hanging above the tra alongside the transgressors. But yet, it's also true here in the, in the baptism scene, isn't it? It's also true that he's being counted, being numbered with the transgressors at the very beginning of his ministry. And it goes on to say, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's that work of God taking place in the life and ministry of Jesus, even in a simple act of John's baptism. And what a beautiful thing it is, because in a very real sense, the baptism of Jesus is pointing to the sacrifice that he will one day, ultimately, three years later, make on the cross. It's pointing toward that and fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah and fulfilling righteousness that you and I might be counted as righteous. We who are not righteous, we who have sinned, being made the very righteousness of God because of what he who had no sin did on our behalf. I don't know if you ever thought about the baptism of Jesus like that or not. When Matthew baptized Evan just a few moments ago, he, he took him into the water, and we, we talk about how baptism is a picture of, of being made new in Christ, being dying to self, 
and being buried in a watery grave and raised to newness of life in Christ, don't we? Don't we? It's exactly what we say. And that's exactly what it is. It's a picture, not of you being saved. You've already been saved if you're in the water. But it's a picture of what took place. And it's a visible illustration. It's really a sermon in action of what is taking place in a man or a woman's life when they go into that water. Well, Jesus, in being baptized by John, was not saying, I'm dying to self and I'm being buried, now I'm raised to newness of life as the Messiah. No, but he is saying there is coming a day when I will die on a cross, I will be buried, and that water represents my grave, and I will raise again on the third day, and I will show you the glory of the kingdom of God like you never dreamed of it before. Jesus' baptism is a pointing forward. It's a beginning of his ministry in a very real sense, which will show the truth of the glory of the king. He says we must do it for the fulfillment of righteousness. And when, when, when Jesus said that to John, all argument ended, and he consented. It's a very succinct way of saying, okay. That's fine with me if that's what must be done. And then Jesus was baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, doesn't go into a lot of detail, doesn't say what the crowd did. I don't know if they applauded like we applauded this morning when Evan was baptized. I I don't know about that. I don't know how they responded. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Mark doesn't tell us that. Luke doesn't tell us that. John certainly doesn't tell us that. But we know that when he was baptized, he came up out of the water and something happened that had not been recorded like this ever before. It said, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the word behold or look, that's another one of Matthew's favorite words. And Jesus was baptized immediately. He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew says this is the proclamation, if you will, of his deity. All the, all the writers, I, I just printed them all out parallel here on another piece of paper. All the gospel writers show that. Mark and Luke recorded it a little differently. They say, in a voice came from heaven that said, You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Both of them seem to say it had the voice talking to Jesus as a matter of encouragement. Both John and Matthew say that a voice came and said, This is my beloved son. There's a lot of... You know, the, the, the views are legion on who heard that voice. Was it just Jesus? As the dove descended, did just Jesus see the dove and Jesus hear the voice and go up out of there and now he's, he's confident of who he is? I don't think so. Maybe it was just Jesus and John. That's certainly a legitimate possibility uh, because uh, John needed to hear that because that was kind of the passing of the baton, if you will. John's ministry had been straightforward, and John was about to, uh, go, to go to the grave very shortly over proclaiming uh, <laughs> confession of sin and calling the king to, to repentance and to, to 
confession of his sin, which he was not going to do for anything. And, and so you, you find this passing of the baton. Now Jesus' ministry is coming full fold. Did the people hear it? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they, all the people standing there said, wow, where did the dove come from? It lit on the shoulder, and, and all of a sudden this booming voice came from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. With the implication, hear him? Hear what he has to say? I, I tend to lean toward that, to be honest with you. I tend to think that those who were standing there were, were probably a little perplexed about why John was so much talking about he must increase and I must decrease. They had followed John and they were thrilled with his ministry. They liked what they heard and they liked what they saw. The common people did. But I kind of have a feeling that they heard that because there is that declaration now of the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the Trinity here. You have a Trinitarian expression of the heavens opening. And, and that really is carries with it the idea that Scripture often does of, of what we call a theophany. A theophany is just a manifestation of God. You saw it all through the Old Testament. You know, God does not have a body. God never appears in bodily form other than in the incarnation in Jesus himself. But, but God appears many times in, in different ways throughout the Old Testament. You, you've got Exodus 19 and 20 at Mount Sinai. The people have been led out of Egypt, and the people are below the mountain, and they, they see fire, and they see smoke on the mountain. And, they, they, and Moses says, that is God's rumbling and God's voice. And he went up to the mountain, and he heard the voice of God, and he gave the law, the Ten Commandments. You've got Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, I, I had this vision, high and loft, lofty and lifted up. I saw the Lord. Now, he doesn't go into any detail about it other than his garments. The robe, the, the train of his robe filled the temple and there was lightning and there was smoke and there was, it was bright and, and there he saw him and he bowed before him and said, woe is me. That was a theophany. Or you've got Ezekiel and in Babylon in exile gives this idea of the heavens open. It says, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Shebar Canal, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. I saw a theophany. I saw God lifted up. Charles Spurgeon in, in one of his sermons on this passage, entitled, The Greatest Preacher and the Greatest Message. But he said there are three things about this passage you need to see. You need to see first that there is a great pulpit. The pulpit is heaven. For the voice came out of heaven. And so the pulpit is, is not a man-made pulpit. It's not a place out in the wilderness, but it's heaven itself. A, the, the heavens opened and the pulpit was there. But secondly... You have here a great preacher. <laughs> it was God himself, God the Father. It was the Father who, spo who spoke as only God can speak. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the one that has come incarnate that you might believe and that you might know me. That's what, John, what Jesus says in John 17. 
when he's praying. He said, Father, I, I pray for them that they may have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. His coming brings about that understanding, that Trinitarian nature of, of coming to Christ is knowing the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and then he says, it's not only the greatest pulpit, it's a great preacher, but it's a great sermon. The sermon was simple. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. He has come now and gone through baptism to show you what he will face to bring atonement to his people. To bring the propitiation of sins to, to be able to, to turn away the wrath of God in your life, in my life, not because of our good deeds, not because we got wet in a baptismal pool, but because we trusted in the one that came from God, the true and the living one, the one who, as I said earlier, was created all things, and by him all things were created. There's a unique father-son relationship that we began to see unfold at the baptism. So in the unique father-son relationship that down through the history of orthodoxy has been counted as a part of that Trinitarian expression, one being that the Nicene Creed written in 325, old, young, early, the Nicene Creed put it this way, used this terminology of father-son to convey, convey Jesus' deity. He said, it said this, Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God. Man, one short, simple sentence. You have the beauty of who Jesus is. And who this experience is unfolding for the people. Here is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Listen to what he has to say. Because what he has to say is true. Here we have the Trinity. The Trinity involved in announcing the kingdom. The Father speaking. The Son in the water. The dove descending from heaven. The symbol of the Holy Spirit coming down, full Trinitarian expression that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is among us. And the kingdom of God is made up of all who believe in this one Jesus, this one Holy Son of the living God. You know, I, even as I say that, I, I can see your, your wheels turning saying, but how do you explain the Trinity? You don't. You can't explain it. Not with our limited, finite minds. But again, as Spurgeon once said, you know I love Spurgeon. As Spurgeon once said, try to figure out the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Deny the Trinity and you'll lose your soul. Because it's, it's the essence of, of the revelation of God of himself in Scripture. Three persons, one God, in Trinity, in perfect unity, carrying out the salvation of his people. As, as Isaiah said, carrying out 
and, and bearing the sin of many and making intercession, intercession for transgressors like you and me. Like you and me. You know, this message is a good reminder for believers that Christ is Lord. And it's a good call to unbelievers, those who've never trusted Christ, that even as with John the Baptist, the message may be crude and the message may not be exactly as finessed as we would like it to be, but the message is true. Christ is the only way to know the living God. Christ is the only way to forgiveness of sins. Christ is the only way for reconciliation with a God that we have offended by our sin. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Walk with Him. Pray with me, would you? Father, what a beautiful story it is to look at the baptism of Jesus. How easy it is just to pass on by and say, well, that's what happened. But so much was happening there in that moment. To inaugurate, to proclaim Jesus' ministry was beginning. Father, let us hear those words. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let us believe those words. Trust in those words. And bow before the living God, the Creator and the Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name.